Uh, I decided the best way to, to get that job would be to just get in my car and drive up there, which was a 12-hour drive. And so I went up, did that, left on a Friday, said, hey, I want to work here and I want to be a race car driver. And he said, kid, we, we got a, a million people that want that job and I don't have any openings. There's no way. And I said, well, I, I really want this job and you really should hire me. And wow, that's nice. But, you know, forget it. Drove back home. Next oh, Friday, wow. One week later, next Friday, drove up there again. Saturday morning, knocked on his door, said, I'm back. Hello and welcome to Million Dollar Monday. I'm your host, Greg Mazzello, bringing you real successful people with real useful advice for people with big dreams. I understand big dreams. I turned an investment of $200 and a lot of great advice from some really successful people into my big dream, Proforma, that today is a half billion dollar company. Well, hello and welcome. I'm excited to introduce my guest for today. And as you know, Million Dollar Monday is for aspiring entrepreneurs and all people with big dreams. Especially today, if you're an aspiring entrepreneur looking for fast growth, listen to these facts. The businesses he started were listed 16 times by Case Western Reserve of the fastest 100 growing companies in Northeastern Ohio. He was a national finalist for the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. 10 times he was ranked by Inc. Magazine under Inner City 100 for being one of the 100 fastest growing companies in the country based in the inner city. And speaking of Inc. Magazine, he was on the Inc. 500 when there were only 500 companies on that listing. And then in 2006, when they expanded it to the Inc. 5000 fastest growing company, Bill's company has been on that list every year since 2006. I'm excited to welcome Bill Koblitz. Bill, welcome. Thank you, Greg. It's good to see you. I love to just start by hearing somebody's story from the beginning. You know, where did you grow up? Where did you get your work ethic, if you will? When did you think you might want to own your own business or have independence? And most importantly, when did you know for sure that you would be successful, even if you didn't know what it might be doing, you knew that you would be successful? So, uh, yeah, I grew up in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Um, have uh, three sisters and a hardworking dad who was an engineer and uh, uh, worked very hard every day, taught me how to work hard and, and, and believed in doing things right. Um, but my, uh, my aspirations and my dreams all were around things that would go fast. I remember always liking things that go fast. So it wasn't about business, although I was working hard to be able to do things. But uh, yeah, I built a go-kart when I was 11 years old, used okay. a lawnmower engine, did that, and then got a motorcycle when I was 15. And I worked with my uncle who had a gas station and uh, was a really good mechanic. He taught me mechanics and, and I talked him into building a race car for us, a stock car, 
when I was 16 going to high school okay. and, uh, and we raced that. And, um, so I always had, uh, a, a dream of getting into racing and I wanted to get into formula one grand prix racing, the ultimate kind of racing. So a uh, little story with that. I was, uh, I, I had gone to, a college prep kind of high school, St. Ignatius with a guy named Greg Mazzillo. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, you know, I was expected to go to college. So I did. And I went for one month and said, I just don't want to be here. I want to be a race car driver. So um, I started to work at a uh, car dealership in, as a mechanic and uh, kept trying to think of a way to get get there, get into racing and of all things. And so um, I, f I figured out if I could get a job at a racing school, they had one up in Canada get a job as a mechanic there, then they would give me a car to race. And so uh, I decided the best way to, to get that job would be to just get in my car and drive up there, which was a 12 hour drive <clears throat> to uh, Montremblant, Canada, tell them I want a job. And so I went up, did that, left on a Friday, slept in my car, got up, knocked on his door in the morning, nine o'clock in the morning, said, hey, I wanna work here and I wanna be a race car driver. And he said, kid, we, we got uh, a million people that want that job and I don't have any openings. There's no way. And I said, well, I, I really want this job and you really should hire me. And well, that's nice. But, you know, forget it. Drove back home. Next oh, Friday, wow. one week later, next Friday, drove up there again. Saturday morning, knocked on his door, said, I'm back. I really want that job. This is really important to me. And you really got to hire me. He said, forget it. We just can't do it. <laughs> drove back home. The third week I drove up there, another 12-hour trip there and back, knocked on his door, and he finally said, look, all right, with that, with that persistence, I'll give you a job, you know, and we're leaving for England in a month. So I got a passport and left. But the reason I bring that story up is because that's, that persistence has been just always critical in everything I do. The idea that you will not be denied, you know. No, you, you don't understand yet. You don't think I'm going to be a mechanic, but you just don't know yet that I am, or you don't think I'm going to be successful, whatever it is, that that belief that uh, you can do it and push through odds has always been really important to me. And I learned that, you know, very young. So then I, I know that, that at some point, a couple years of the racing business, you went to John Carroll University there in Cleveland. Did you originally start at Sean Carroll and drop out, or did you start at a different school? Uh, right out of high school, I went to Case, uh, Western okay. Reserve Case, for one month. Yeah, for and then month. when I started back up after the racing, I went to uh, John Carroll. Yeah, and I uh, at that point, I you know my my dad had said, "Look, I'll I'll pay for you the first time, but you know you're on your own now, basically." Okay. So. Uh, so I just uh, I just kept my uh, mechanic job and then went okay. to school at night and uh, uh, talk about a period of working hard. I graduated in three and a half years, so I was working my butt off to be in school, get through uh, an accounting program, and uh, and also have a full time job to be able to pay for it. So I just worked tons of hours and uh, got through that point. Right, right. and. Uh, yeah, I went into accounting uh, just because uh, uh, the the uh, counselor I talked with said, I said, I want to go into business. What should I learn? He said that you should learn accounting because it's the language of business and 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 it'll help you uh, no matter what you do, you know, with that. Mm -hmm. so that's how I wound in in that. And uh, 
then got a job with Ernst & Young for uh, a few years, but I was really uh, bored with that kind of work and kept pushing for advancement and uh, got a lot out of it, learned a lot, uh, but really wanted to get out on my own and get into business uh, running my own, my own program. So then tell us how you go from Ernst & Young, and for those that don't know, back in those days, there were eight they were called the big eight CPA firms. And that was a hard ticket bill. So you, you had to have good grades and good recommendations to get that job. So congratulations. But how do you go from the account, the uh, accounting job? Uh, were you on the audit team, by the way, or were you with one of the specialties? Yes, I was on audit. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and then, so how do you go then from a career at e and in accounting, one of the big eight to the next business that you started? Tell us that story, the transition, how you got the idea? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so uh, a friend of mine who uh, had uh, gone on to get an MBA at Harvard uh, was starting up a company, um, uh, a brand new startup in the healthcare field. And uh, he had some other friends, really smart guys. And, and one bit of advice is definitely associate yourself with other people smarter than you, you know, that are smart guys. And these were smart, but young guys. And they, uh, they thought they could raise some capital. So uh, to, to start a, a new venture. Uh, and I said, I would do the accounting work for them, you know, at night and, and do it gratis. And uh, okay. then they were able to raise the uh, equity capital, venture capital to start a company up that would open urgent care centers. So walk-in mm -hmm. care centers, and there wasn't really such a thing at the time one of the first ones doing that. And I, uh, once I got the capital raised and I joined as their uh, CFO uh, of the company. So that's how that started. And uh, the opportunity with, with uh, the company, it was called MedCenter, came out of uh, adversity, which often is the case. Where did the idea come from to pivot to uh, helping corporations uh, screen people and take care of their people. That, that it sounds like an important pivot. Um, yeah. I mean, I, we were all in, in team meetings, all looking for ways to uh, mm -hmm. increase revenues. What could we do using this model where we had doctors and nurses and we're ready to take care of people? What could we do that would increase that volume? And um so it really came out of that. And we just started to work with a couple companies on that and um, learn more about workers' compensation and how it worked and, and how the system was really yeah. kind of broken and, and, and not prone to uh, working well for the employer or for the injured employee. It was just, uh, uh, just a bad system. So. Yeah. It's an important lesson for people to learn today, Bill. I, I know I don't have to tell you, there are a lot of business people, maybe some even listening today, whose businesses have been hurt by the current pandemic and they need to pivot. And, yeah. and uh, so sitting around, brainstorming with your team, uh, from that came an idea that turned the company around, made it profitable, more importantly, made it saleable uh, and help you to move on. Did you take some time off or what transpired between the sale of that company, starting the new company, and where did the idea for the new company come from? So I was, I was looking for different businesses and uh, I, I hadn't taken any time off. Um, 
Uh, when I sold MedCenter, I agreed to stay on for two years. And I was in a corporate kind of environment, and I really wasn't well suited to that. So right. uh, I don't think I'm very employable. Once you get, once you, once you start a business, it's hard to be employed. Um, but uh, continued to work with them. But on the side, I started to look at other companies that I might be able to acquire. And I just, I actually stumbled into one. Someone said they had heard of a company that they were modifying vans for people with wheelchairs. They were like a small body shop, basically. And they couldn't pay the Ford dealer that they were buying the vans from. And they went bankrupt. And the Ford dealer I knew of through a friend, uh, they didn't want the business either, but they thought it was a really good service. And so they would wanted somebody to take it over, basically. Um, and I, I went over and, and saw what they were doing. They, were, they, they would have a customer who's in a wheelchair. Uh, all of a sudden, they had had an accident or had an illness. They're in this chair. They, got, they can't get in a car anymore. So they would have them buy a van, and then they would take their van and take their welding torches out, and they cut it all up so that you could get into the van. There was enough room in it. And uh, it took about three or four or five months to do that work. And then they give you your van back and uh, all that had to be paid for in cash, all that improvement. And, and then your van might work for you or it might not work because it's really tight spaces. Really? Okay. And uh, the, the doors might leak water because you had to seal all those and you sure didn't know if it was safe at all. Because uh, there wasn't any testing or anything, I thought, "Wow, this is this is really needs a lot of improvement." And I had the mechanical background, so I I felt there'd be a, a a very significant opportunity, change the model, and then grow it throughout the country. And that's basically where we. So that company's called Mobility Works. The signs right behind you, great logo, by the way, <laughs> um, and and. That conversation that led to looking into this, how did it come up? Remember somebody just telling you about this bankrupt uh, yeah. garage, if you will? Uh, how did that come up in just a casual conversation or, or do you remember? Yeah, yeah, it was well, I gotten the word out that I was looking for another business. Mm -hmm. And and this was a, uh, in an, uh, a guy who managed investments that I had been talking with. And he knew the, the guy that owned the Ford dealership. So it was by getting the word out, uh, I talked with a lot of people and everyone knew I was looking. I think, Bill, that's a pretty special talent on your part, because I think a lot of people would have heard about a garage that was bankrupt doing, what is that again to vehicles, uh, and would have just dismissed it out of hand. Um, how did you even think that that might be an opportunity worth your time? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, you just uh, when you see something that's really not not in good shape, you either see it for its ugliness or you see it for its potential. And and I guess, uh, um, yeah, I, I I like to see the potential in things. And uh, I think a lot of a lot of people are like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm a big believer in the law of attraction. And, and I think believing brings great things to us. But another thing I'm hearing from your lesson is 
tell a lot of people what you're looking for and then have an open mind because uh, uh, you networked a lot. You told a lot of people you were looking for a right business opportunity. There were a lot of things that might have come your way that weren't quite right. And yet you kept an open mind about something that I'll bet you a lot of people dismissed out of hand. Like I am not, I'm not going to go look at that. Uh, but it does make sense that your background and your passion for racing and working in a garage along with uh, uh, your understanding of the healthcare system was like a match made in heaven at the time that you could uniquely see the opportunity and knew you could take take maximum advantage of it where, where a lot of the people might not have had those prior skill sets. Okay, so, so you buy a, a pretty much failing away, flailing away garage. Um, what, what, what did you do? Focus on that single operation and clean it up, fix it up, fix, you know, make sure the cars weren't leaking anymore and that they worked in garages. What, what did you do to get to the point that you were ready to start rolling out more locations? Yeah. So what we did is uh, really try to improve the, the, the way that they were doing the remanufacturing because there were issues. Uh, they were rusting, they were leaking, they were, you know, having rattles, all kinds of issues. So uh, worked with uh, the, the mechanics there, the welders there to improve it. Um, at the same time, we started to pre-build vehicles because this idea that you tell someone who just had this terrible accident or illness, hey, you got to go buy a vehicle and I'll give it, give it back to you in six months was just a bad way of doing it. So I always felt like if we could pre-build the vehicles and then show them to someone uh, who wanted to buy uh, and they could get into it. And then you could make some final fitting adjustments to their circumstances. That would be a much better way of doing it. So uh, a lot of what we did was to just invest more capital into that pre-building and then selling. And that worked well. Um, and that also worked well on the commercial side of the business. What I'm referring to commercial is, is the customer is commercial. So it's a hospital or an ambulance company. Oh, or a nursing home. It's one of those companies that are, tr they're, they're moving people around that are in a wheelchair and, and they have drivers that are doing that. So they, they Got buy it. vehicles in order to do that. So we so were we selling to those nursing homes and hospitals and, and there were just, it was just a patchwork of small companies that were building vehicles for them to transport someone in a wheelchair. And so we just started to sell throughout the country, basically and then became the national leader in selling those vehicles. I see. I get it now. So a key to the success, and I wouldn't have understood this unless you explained it. So thank you for that. Uh, wasn't just somebody sitting like in a retail store waiting for to learn that somebody needed a, a vehicle, but it was also to get out on the street and call on people that needed the vehicles themselves uh, and sell them to, to those commercial institutions that needed them. Yeah. Yeah. And the key was I didn't have much cash, you know, to invest and I didn't want to necessarily get investors. Uh, the more you can own, the better. So with limited cash, what could we grow? And, and I could grow nationally selling to commercial businesses. And then the dream always was, but retail selling to consumers, selling to the individual is a much bigger part of the market but it also takes a lot of cash to open up a store. 
Uh, so we needed cash. And so we became the leader in the commercial side of the business that created the cash flow that then we opened up a store in Detroit and started to acquire other small mom and pop stores. Yeah. What I'm loving about your story, Bill, is, is that you've reinvented yourself, not just two times since you started companies, but you've reinvented the companies, uh, to survive and also to thrive. Uh, it's a great skill of yours to be able to continue to do what you can, even if you have limited capital, find another way. I wouldn't call that one a pivot, but nonetheless, you found more paths to the market with limited capital. So congratulations. Let's talk about having a partner. When you say you brought a partner in, was he a e equal 50-50 equity partner with you? Um, we worked it out that that I had the majority control, okay. uh, 60, 40. And uh, that that was always key to me because you, yes. you do have issues from time to time and and you can't be equal. You got to ultimately have somebody that's going to say, okay, we'll go in this direction. Uh, and that's uh, with full respect to my partner, who's a, a, a very sharp guy, very capable, very competent, but someone also has to be ultimately, you know, uh, in, in charge of, of those kind of decisions. And I think you also have to feel that your partner is bringing, if it's 60, 40, and, and he's the 40, that he's bringing 40% or more of the value to the table ongoingly, or things can fall apart also. Uh, sure. So it's not just about control, but it's about contribution. All right. So now you've sold the company. You've sold a majority interest in the company. I think you still, as we talked, have uh, something left uh, so you could get another bite someday uh, at, yeah. at, at the Apple. But I know that you're spending a whole lot more time in your Florida home uh, and less time up in your Ohio home. And you've moved on to really being a very generous man now uh, who, in your own way, is giving back big time and have created a foundation Tell us about that, that new chapter in your life, moving from success to significance, if you will, Bill. Oh, okay, sure. Um, yeah, I'm still involved with the company to some extent. Uh, we brought another CEO on, a guy named Brian Everett, who's got really phenomenal retail experience from Target and Rite Aid, where he's COO, and a real great leader, really capable, competent leader. Uh, who will maintain our culture, uh, has very much of a servant's attitude towards uh, the people, the team that works with him, and uh, just a really great leader. So very excited about that. I'm staying on as chairman, but the uh, time commitment is, is pretty minimal, and that responsibility you know all about uh, that weighs on you when you go to sleep and when you wake up of, of your company and making sure everything's okay, that's been lifted, which is a real relief. So yeah, so what we're, my wife and I are looking forward to in our next chapter is uh, we've been uh, very blessed by all the circumstances that happen in our lives and, uh, and all of the opportunities. And so we've been able to uh, gift a lot of the stock to charitable trusts and, and, uh, and, and have done additional gifts. So we're going to, Laura and I are going to be focusing our time on looking at causes that, that are, we feel are, are uh, meaningful and important. Uh, we're, we're both Christians, so 
revolve around uh, that kind of leadership, but are really excited about finding places that we can give our, our time as well as our, our, our uh, fortunes to and support those and get very involved with. Bill, you are uh, really a, a inspiration to everybody uh, that listened. Uh, I think a lot of the inspiration comes from number one, first and foremost, your ability to believe in yourself, your ability to tackle things that you, you sort of hear. And even when you're in the middle of the swamp, realizing that there's got to be another way to get out of it and uh, pivot successfully. And you've successfully pivoted to businesses uh, from problems to great financial success. So Bill, I want to thank you very much for sharing some of your time, some of your wisdom and and a lot of your insight. You are an inspiration. And for all of you who are listening, no matter what your entrepreneurial dream, uh, no matter what your big dream, you can accomplish it all with believing in yourself, followed by a lot of persistence. Again, Bill, thank you very much. Thank you, Greg. Pleasure to talk with you. Same.